Hello, everybody. I'm Brian Levine, and welcome to The Gould Standard, a podcast brought to you by the Glenn Gould Foundation. Here we are again, bringing you conversations with some of the most remarkable people from all across the world of the arts. If film, theater, books, dance, music, poetry, painting, novels, or sculpture are the high that make you feel mighty, you have come to the right place, my friends. As Shakespeare said of the Lyre of Orpheus, at the Gould Standard, we believe that the arts have a golden touch to soften steel and stones, make tigers tame and huge leviathans, forsake unsounded depths to dance on sands. And if you think we just dropped in that random bit of bardolatry by chance, well, you just wait and see. But first, while you're stopping by under our illustrious neon piano sign, please do take a moment to press like, share, and subscribe. And if you just so happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts, please kindly leave your reviews, pose your questions, and be part of our community of friends and supporters. And to get more simply sensational sounds, words, and images, we'd like to invite you to pay us a visit at our website, glengould.ca. While you're there, you'll undoubtedly notice a great big donate button. That's because we are, in fact, a Canadian charity, and we rely on the generous gifts of friends and listeners like you to continue our work. So please do give generously. Now, today, our guest is Sir Kenneth Branagh, widely recognized as one of the finest actors in the English language, both on stage and in film. He's also among today's most accomplished film and stage directors. He has founded at least two theatrical companies, starred on London's West End and on Broadway, and in several successful British TV series. Kenneth Branagh has been nominated five times for the Academy Award. He's won three BAFTAs and has played a dazzling array of roles, ranging from Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Sir Lawrence Olivier, to Hercule Poirot, Victor Frankenstein, and even Nazi mass murderer Reinhard Heydrich. But for almost everyone, he is first and foremost one of the great Shakespearean actors of our time. He achieved international celebrity, directing and starring, in the 1989 film of Henry V, and following that went on to direct As You Like It, Love's Labor's Lost, Much Ado About Nothing, and the only completely unabridged version of Hamlet ever to hit the screen. He has even played the Bard of Avon himself in the 2019 film All Is True, which he also directed. Now Kenneth Branagh has brought to the screen what must be the most personal project of his career the film Belfast, which presents the story of a family and a neighborhood racked by the violence and social fracture caused by that wave of sectarian turmoil in Northern Ireland known as the Troubles, as seen through the eyes of a nine-year-old boy, Buddy, closely modeled on the experiences of the filmmaker himself. It's a stunning film, a visual and dramatic tour de force that never strikes a wrong note. And I'm not alone in becoming an instant fan of Belfast, the film won this year's People's Choice Award at this year's Toronto International Film Festival, long considered a strong predictor of Oscar success. Here to talk about Belfast and other career highlights, Sir Kenneth Branagh. Welcome, Ken. Thank you very much, Brian. Love to be here. Congratulations on the early audience and critical success of Belfast. Can you tell us a little bit about how the film came about and why you chose this moment to make a film so deeply intertwined with your own life story? Well, I think that the um, the 50 years since I left Belfast uh, have had the sense in, in which that leaving, that, that incident of the violence that ultimately 
provoked our family's um, departure from those shores was a defining moment in my life. It changed the entire direction of my life, and uh, it seemed to do so in just a few short seconds or minutes when a rioting mob visited our street. At the beginning of this lockdown, I think that many people were, were staring into a silence. The aeroplanes were not flying, the cars were quieter, and, and into that quiet mind came more and more of Belfast. And the lockdown we were in took me back to that other lockdown where our street eventually became a fortress and our lives were sort of worked out through what we're all living through and have been living through, which is this sort of very profound sense of being uncertain and unsettled. So those feelings swam back and this story swam out. Well, a few things struck me about Belfast right from the start. And if you don't mind me starting from the outside and working uh, our way in a little bit, the film has some of the most beautiful black and white cinematography I've seen in years. In fact, I'd rank it right up there in the pantheon I reserve for films like The Third Man, Touch of Evil, some of the film noir masterpieces by people like John Alton. Was that a look and feel that you were planning from the very outset, or did that sort of evolve as the film took shape? Well, thank you. I really appreciate those. You know, those, those, that's, a, that's a lineage of great, great filmmaking there. Well, certainly we were inspired by such filmmaking. I wanted to absolutely follow my instincts about how to shoot it. So that meant shooting physically often from the point of view of a, of a nine-year-old boy. I also wanted the forensic qualities of the black and white photography, particularly I would call a sort of liquid, silky, velvety black and white that did not apply or seek additional grain. It didn't look for additional authenticity or, or, or agedness. The inspirations were from stills photographers as much as as uh, great cinematographers. So the work of Cartier-Bresson and the way that he talks about the decisive moment uh, was was both photography allied to compositional work. So trying to find the moment where perhaps a large object in foreground, perhaps a chocolate-covered boy sleeping uh, with his brother after an intense and emotional Christmas day, too much sugar, and in the far background, in the deep focus of the far background, the two parents talking about their very future and whether they might leave and whether they themselves, the, the, the mother and father, have a future together. So the composition and a sort of clean and beautiful and rich and liquid black and white, and then the opportunity to keep the audience feeling unsettled with the way in which we cut. So to give an example, when the bad man, Billy Clanton, comes to the back door to issue the first of the warnings of intimidation about lack of cooperation from the boy's father, we see the boy's point of view from very low of a massive burdened back of his father at the door to the ranch or the homestead, as you might think, a massive, dark and lowering Belfast northern sky above him. And those kinds of um, shifts of framing that are natural, horizontal, adult height um, compositional views w was part of saying that from the moment the violence began, the way in which the boy saw the world was fractured, sometimes very glamorously as he strove to maintain a sense of what his family meant for him. And so we photographed Jamie Dornan and, and Katrina Balfe as Ma and Pa, who are two very beautiful people, very glamorously in the same way as the boy himself had idealized this couple who needed to remain perfect if his world was somehow to remain stable. So black and white with its curious paradox 
people say it's all there in black and white as if you're a, as if you're implying an additional authenticity but in fact it is not how we see the world it in fact um it offers this more forensic way of um of of looking at faces and offering an inbuilt sense of sort of poetry the kind of poetry that people like Cartier Bresson or Don McCullen great English photographer found in in urban areas working class environments in their great works now the the life and soul of the film i think is the family they're the anchor that but he clings to they give him the stability that he needs in the midst of the upheavals that are tearing apart his little working class street and the larger society around him and for much of the film buddy almost seems to be taking it in his stride finding a child's life amidst all this chaos and somehow constructing a sense of normality out of it all but i think that's largely because of the courage that his parents and grandparents show in their determination to keep it all together was that your experience growing up i think it was my experience and the experience of many uh, young people whose parents were adjusting to this sort of tremendous rupture where there was a a sort of living metaphor that we walked out into uh, the ground from beneath our feet had been taken uh, concrete the paving stones were no longer there they were at the end of the street now making up the bones of the barricade and instead we were walking on sand literally walking on sand which is softer and shifts and and i think the the determination to try and inside that chaos uh, and inside the extreme heightened absurdity of a situation where the physical framework of the street has changed instantly and the population makeup of the street has changed instantly and Paddy from two doors down, who is no different from Paddy today than Paddy yesterday, except now the religious badge she wears is deemed uh, unacceptable to the majority. All of that meant, I think, that where joy could be relished and seized, where ad hoc parties, where music, where fun, where dancing, where jokes, where where anything that, that was um, a coping me- mechanism of relief away from this catastrophic change, uh, parents and grandparents threw themselves at. And there's a, quite a poignant moment in the middle of the film where, accompanied by Van Morrison's songs, uh, song Days Like These, um, which evokes this world of, of, of possibility when, when the pain stops for a minute, the sun will shine. Uh, we see the family out playing together, the large extended family playing basketball, playing sort of rounders, but, you know, policemen and soldiers are patrolling uh, around them and somehow they are trying to find their way to make that the new normal. Our parents made an enormous effort to try and make that possible for us. The film features absolutely brilliant performances. Um, The young actor Jude Hall is astonishing as Buddy, but also the work of Katrina Balf and Janie Dornan, which you've already mentioned, and the ever-amazing Judy Dench and... Kieran Hines, was it a challenge to find a balance between letting them create these characters and your desire to evoke the spirit of people who were such central figures in your own life? Well, it's an interesting question, Brian. I I determined from early on that I should give the actors as much license as I possibly could. I wanted to be sure that in making a film that was personal, that it did not contain itself or restrict itself to something that was too inward looking or too a specific or where there was a tension behind the camera determined to somehow in documentary fashion recreate uh, some specific period moment. The psychologists say the facts of our life are less important than how we remember them. So if I could understand the emotional truth of how we remembered them, then there would be a lot of room left for 
Jude Hill's very sort of questioning, funny intelligence. Katrina Balfe's, you know, largesse as a human being. Uh, Judy Dench's um, sort of delicious naughtiness as a as a character that she brings to Granny. So they all extended and expanded and owned the characters. And so I didn't want a dynamic where they were in sort of slavish um, uh, relationship to me as the as the keeper of the secrets, as it were. Uh, I was happy for it to become something else because. I felt ultimately I had I had placed enough specificity in the story and the place to feel that now our obligation was to find everything that took it out to the world and offered recognition uh, to other to others, um, and not not just a kind of confining miniature tale of my own experience. Another of the anchors that provides some shred of normality in Buddy's life is film and uh, TV shows. And I thought you were rather shrewd in the clips you selected, High Noon and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, evoking a time of lawlessness and fear, one million years BC, where two hostile tribes are ultimately united, and of course, Star Trek, with the Federation of Planets imagining a united humanity. Did your own love of film start in childhood, and what were the films that made the strongest impressions on you early on? Well, some of the ones you mentioned that made their way into the film, that they also in the film include clips from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. In the 60s, the, the great big widescreen saturated color of uh, things like uh, The Great Escape or actually uh, the, the Sound of Music with another great Canadian. In fact, there were two great Canadians at one stage, both William Shatner, who is who is uh, uh, featured uh, vocally, but also Christopher Plummer was in for a while, the, the late great, um, in, a, in a clip from The Sound of Music because that great big widescreen, very colored and colorful experience and also full of the massive landscape of the Austrian Tyrol and the, and the Alps had a huge impact on us and the music we loved. And Julie Andrews was both angelic and sexy, I thought, and uh, just as sexy in a different way from Miss Raquel Welsh. And, and those, and, and the, particularly, I suppose, those for the escape, those for the thrill of being in the communal experience in the dark with the massive image. That was what was so thrilling about that in places I couldn't imagine. Somehow the black and white of the Westerns felt very much nearer home. Um, so John Ford Westerns, like the man who shot Liberty Valance or Fred Zinnemann's High Noon, um, in black and white on our television at home, for me, had the sort of tonal range of the sort of rain-infused dark northern climes in which I lived, where grey and concrete and the grey of Belfast Loch uh, it felt very sort of dominant as a color and alas and alack and in ways that again the boy tries to sort of hold on to as a way as a means of understanding uh, whatever you might call it the moral universe of those films simplistic but perhaps reassuring in a time of conflict good guy bad guy bad guy will lose good guy will get girl was the message that you hoped might apply as you noticed some of those same sort of tropes appearing live uh, on your own street. Mm -hmm. Now, I mentioned that in much of the film, Buddy seems to be taking everything in his stride, but clearly everything is not okay, and how could it be for a child in that kind of setting? And that really comes to the fore in a scene that is absolutely amazingly played by Jude Hill towards the end of the film, and I, I won't give away the specifics, but how did you and Jude manage to get that moment of agonized release, and did you experience the same thing yourself? Just so I'm clear, Brian, are you referring to at Christmas time his final concern about the leaving of Belfast? Yes. I talked to him about it in advance, and it was certainly my experience, and I remember it being um, a very formative experience. And 
And in a way, part of what the film inevitably is talking about on, on a number of different levels, which is the idea of loss, the loss of identity, the loss of family, the loss of home, and, and sometimes the loss of loved ones. And this processing of this difficult thing to understand as a young person is, of course, accelerated in such a life. So, yes, I talked to, to, to Jude a few days ahead of the scene, and I also encouraged him to think about whether he was ready to improvise a little, um, that what I had written was a scene that might be very hard to do from a standing start. It's quite a sort of hot scene emotionally. And I told him that uh, Katrina and Jamie would also be prepared to imp improvise and that we wouldn't necessarily share the substance of the subject matter, if you like. And was he ready to to do that? And did he also understand, um, which I was very keen to explain without destroying the process, that what we were about to do was indeed pretending. Uh, it was not something that need scar him uh, in the way that, frankly, it had scarred me uh, when it originally occurred. And uh, he had, and I spoke to his mum about it as well. She was his constant uh, companion during the shoot, and a very wise woman she is. Um, so Seanine was in on all of that. And um, and he did a wonderful job of committing to it, at somehow being in the moment without without it, it it kind of breaking his own heart. However, what I would say was that it did it did absolutely exhaust him. And in the scene that we filmed afterwards, which was him as if Buddy had been eating chocolate all through Christmas Day and then falls asleep comatose on the sofa, and he ends up in the front foreground of our frame and uh, apparently asleep while his parents talk about um, an important matter concerning him in the background. And the real boy really was asleep. He was fast asleep. And Katrina and Jamie did indeed carefully whisper their way through that important scene so he wouldn't be disturbed. And ultimately, we had to call his mum to wake him up so that we didn't traumatize him <laughs> when eventually, you know, an hour or so later, the scene was finished. And he was, so he was, it didn't traumatize him, but it definitely spent all emotional reserves. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, it really is a gorgeous film. And one thing that comes through powerfully is the force of love that binds the family together, despite the challenges, their conflicts and frustrations, you know, that and their humor. The strength of familial love really is palpable from start to finish. And for me, in a, an odd way, it evoked another one of your recent films, All is True, from 2019, in which you play William Shakespeare returning to his family in Stratford for the final years of his life after being away for about 20 years in London. And now the Shakespeare family is different because it, they really have to find each other again uh, and overcome the kind of traumatic pain that drove William away so many years before. But is this a theme that's emerging in your work, the power of families and the love that holds them together? I think that in some ways my um, entire career has been spent recreating the family that I think was ruptured by the events that occur in Belfast. If it takes a village to raise a child, um, and it seemed to and, and was effective in my experience, then we, you know, removed ourselves or were removed from that village. And I would say that we became a much more insular unit after that and, and more insular as individuals. Uh, but when I eventually discovered acting and eventually sought a future in that world, one of the things that I did so very early on was form an acting company where suddenly suddenly you're in amongst 24, 25 people in total. 
touring and indeed coming to Canada with one of our first tours. And I immediately hightailed it to Stratford, Ontario, where I met for the first time with my good mate, Colm Fior, the great Canadian actor, and who was also at that stage, David William, late great, was uh, artistic director there. And, and I've always visited that company whenever I've been in Canada because I adore seeing that massive creative family. And I think that the sense of support, the sense of the sense that we are not alone, that such experiences bring in that more ad hoc version, uh, but that I felt uh, very powerfully as a young person, I suppose I've been seeking ever since. And in a way, also in these last films, I think there is quite a connection between all is true in this film, as you perceptively note, uh, Brian, that um, is also to do with... Huh, accepting that the family is not a perfect place. It's not a perfect environment. Some might regard it as the most eternally imperfect of environments. But nevertheless, we cannot get away from the hold that it has on us if we're lucky enough to experience one in any way. And the attempt to find peace inside a family or resolution or a sort of uh, modus operandi that is fruitful and creative and loving, I think is it's pretty challenging for most families and always, always, always worthwhile. And in both of these films, I think that the ways and means of that kind of um, attempt is, is explored. Is that sense of recreating a kind of a, a substitute family in your work one of the factors that leads you to work so often with the same people? Judy Dench, who I think you probably have collaborated with, what, about 900 times now? And uh, <laughs> Patrick Doyle, uh, who's written the music for most of your films and many of your uh, theatrical productions, and Derek Jacobi, and on and on it, it goes, is that sense of the familial familiar something that you've sought to sort of recreate through throughout your career? I think uh, I have been drawn to it. I have a sense of loyalty as well that I enjoy, and I enjoy that as a reciprocal quality. Uh, I enjoy the depth that is possible with these relationships evolving over time. I've seen that in spectacular examples with my experience working with Judy. I think we have worked together 12 times. Patrick Doyle and I have worked on films, probably 15 or 16 out of the 19 feature films that I've made. And I think that the relationship and the openness and the mutual respect and the and the determination that neither will give the other the chance to become smug or um, settled with anything. Uh, these people are all artistic Puritans as well, and they determine as I try to, but I'm grateful for their help when I falter to make sure that we are, are, are taking advantage of that longevity in our relationships and in hopefully our developing talents to see, well, can we, in the lifelong pursuit of excellence, take it one step further or one fathom deeper. Mm -hmm. And of course, you don't have to start from scratch. You you know each other, you know each other's methods and, and so on. So I would guess that there's a kind of a shorthand that already has been established through long experience. Yeah, most certainly. Judy says that I find with these people, but I find that also working with Van Morrison for the first time, that artist at his fingertips, these are people whom you begin a sentence and then they say, no, got it. Yep, understood. Fine, leave it with yep. me. And it's not them being a curt or brusque. Uh, in fact, you're very happy to stop because you know that if you've been lucky, one line, one idea, one sentence may have been the stone in the lake that is rippling 
a million other bits of creativity, which now you're thrilled to get because they'll make it something else. They'll develop it. They're running with it in some way. And that's, uh, that's very exciting. I love being cut off by clever people. Absolutely. All is True provides a nice spot to pivot to that body of work that perhaps you're most closely associated with, the, the plays of William Shakespeare. When did you get hooked on the bard? At about 13, I saw a riotous production of Romeo and Juliet, um, a matinee full of school children. I was one. And um, from the moment the fights at the beginning started, the place was in an uproar, and I loved it. Uh, it was so exciting. So my first experience of watching Shakespeare was that it was a very vital, vivid, alive thing. It was a very muscular production at somewhere called St. George's Tufnell Park. It was a sort of forerunner of what would be Shakespeare's Globe in, in London, um, very much the Elizabethan model of the Playhouse. A lot of people, I think 1,200 kids in there. It was a real event. That was a life changer. And by no small coincidence, one of the first really acclaimed productions you did with the Renaissance Theatre Company was Romeo and Juliet. It was our uh, starting point, and uh, when we did that, we also uh, we had five girls, five boys. Many of the girls played many of the boys' parts, and we were cross-gender, cross-everything. We were um, uh, everybody was paid the same money. Uh, it was just a, it was a it was a very it was a great adventure. It was a disaster critically. Nobody liked it, um, and we, we you know we uh, we lost what money I had that I'd put into it. I lost, but I I, I gained gold of another kind. When was the first time you worked in a production with an actor whose work you knew and who really filled you with awe and, you know, was kind of an icon to you? Well, you know, on, on one level, um, David William, who Canadian auditors will know from his tenure of uh, Stratford Ontario, he played the role of Vaughan Cunningham in a play called Another Country, written by Julian Mitchell. It was my first theatre job. I was 21 years old, and he came on for one big scene as a visiting lecturer. And his precision, his clarity, um, and his support to me during that time was exemplary. He was the first man who said to me when he helped prepare me for an audition, which I failed to play uh, Hal in Henry IV, parts one and two at the Leicester Haymarket Theatre in uh, 1982. But he prepared me for the audition. So he, 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 um, and he said, you can visit me at the flat. He said, you should arrive at two o'clock prompt, having had, I didn't understand what he meant. He said, having had lunch, I'm not preparing lunch for you. And then when I did the scene um, from uh, Henry IV, Part One, how when all the rowdy, you know, taverners are gone, he turns to the audience and says, I know you all and will a while uphold the unyoked humor of, of your idleness. But herein will I imitate the sun. And, uh, and so he goes on to suggest how he will become the, the, the man who will be king. And he said, yes, interesting. You do it quite well. You must now seek the numinous. I said, I don't know what you mean, sir. The numinous, the otherworldly, do it again with a sense of something greater than the mere facts of your plan. Um, and that was an enormous sort of help into opening up into a, a larger way of observing the creative process. So he was thoughtful, helpful, stern, uh, brilliant. And, you know, for you aspiring actors out there, please take note. Kenneth Branagh did audition for parts that he didn't get, so take heart. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I say often? Yeah, no, I didn't get in the door there. I couldn't, I couldn't get arrested for my first half or dozen auditions, and then I, I fell into some luck elsewhere. Oh, that's great. There are a few things that I associate with your approach to Shakespeare. First of all, 
to bring to life the fact that his plays were conceived as popular entertainment in their own time, and also to bring a fresh imaginative approach to the staging setting and the use of the technical resources that modern stagecraft allows to achieve that entertainment value. To choose one among innumerable examples, there's the the 2013 production of the Scottish play that you co-directed with Rob Ashford, which was, I think, presented in a repurposed church at the Manchester Festival first, but then later went to the uh, Armory in New York. What strikes me about that is the amount of mud and rain and real blood in the guts of the play that came through very, very powerfully. Where do ideas like that begin for you when you're, you're faced with the text and you know that you've got a new production to mount? Well, it's so interesting, you know, with, given what you just asked me, way back, I came over to Stratford and I saw, uh, I, I, I saw David William and I uh, went to see, I think I saw Colm, Fior and Goldie Semple in Much Ado About Nothing. And I think they were preparing a production of Macbeth. So this is about 30 years ago. And, um, and I said, and how are you doing it, um, David? He said, well, I guess you have to remember a couple of things about Macbeth. Uh, first of all, he's a warrior. Um, he said, it's an obvious thing to say, but not necessarily understood. And, uh, and that it's a good marriage. Um, and, uh, those were a couple of things that I bore in mind. So a sense that we should bring on stage evidence of him being a warrior, i.e. have the battle that the witches referred to instead of having the description of Macbeth's uh, martial prowess reported to us, let us see it. And in so doing, allow the possibility, which was my experience of that first Shakespeare play, Romeo and Juliet, when I was 13, of seeing what we then created, which was 25 men and women fighting in the rain, in mud, with swords crackling sparks as they smashed. And so after the thunder and the lightning and those three women came this incredible, you know, mob violence. And of course, the audience were leaning forward immediately and Macbeth the warrior was established. And with Alex Kingston, uh, the sense that uh, that uh, they were a partnership and that the, it was still a lively physical partnership, a lively, a passionate uh, relationship was one that we absolutely um, embraced and did not um, turn it into something more conceptual. We tried to go for something that, that, that accepted what was on the page and then really embody it with a little license here and there. Um, but what I thought, a license that I believed were, was in the, in the vein of, you know, Shakespeare's own oft indicated alarms and excursions. So we provided our own. Well, that, that actually raises an interesting point because uh, and I'm not referring to that production when I ask this question, but is there a risk that the so-called big concept approach to reinterpreting a familiar work can overwhelm the performances and, you know, somewhat obscure the human drama, which is really at the heart of the, the matter? The truth is that it can, but that the risk is often worth taking and that sometimes the, that is how you discover that that's not how the way to do it, not the way to do it. And maybe that's a painful one that the audience would rather not have had the experience of understanding in that way, but you might call that the glory of live theater. And then I think that every route up, up the sort of mountains that are these masterpieces, these in, well, that require interpretations is legit. Conceptual, performance-led, bare bones, you know, heavily produced. You, you, I think you'll always want to find the human and the humane in the middle of it. 
Um, but there are also great spectacle and pageant plays. There are also plays that are just miracles of sort of daft plot, like the Comedy of Errors. There's there's the pageant, the pageantry as well as everything else of Richard the Third, with with funerals and coronations and and battles. And you know, there's you sometimes feel as though that's a play that you can throw the throw the whole kitchen sink at that, and the play will you know absorb all of it. So I think. Um, I think it's okay to play with the danger that things will be overwhelmed. I would always be in favor of big, bold choices like that rather than um, the safe and the revered and the over-reverential and the, uh, the danger there being that it can become lifeless. And after all, there are always lots of choices that fall into that category, so people aren't forced to choose one or the other. Um, one thing that I always wonder about not being in the profession, but for an actor or a director facing a Shakespeare play that they haven't done before, you know, first of all, the sheer monumental size of most of them, um, they're long, there are huge numbers of words to memorize, the role of Hamlet, as you know better than anyone, I think it's over 1,500 lines, they're often very nonspecific, so they don't necessarily suggest the visual approach, but they also have this mass of textual detail, wordplay, historical context, uh, which a contemporary audience may not be that familiar with. And to top it all off, working against you, each and every one of them has a long distinguished tradition of others who have essayed the roles and directors that you can be compared with. Can you take us through the process, you know, when you're sort of at the very bottom of the mountain about to make the climb of getting around these immense texts for the first time? finding the dramatic shape, and then refining it into something that you can put a personal stamp on? Well, I think slowly, slowly is the, is the, is the first part of the answer. Um, I circle, I would circle that mountain actually for quite some time. I would do the recce. You know, when they went up Everest uh, on, the, on the expedition that, that Mapp, Mallory and Irving uh, last lost their lives on in 1924, they'd had three reconnaissances in the three, in the three previous years uh, to try and work out the best route. And uh, it pays off with the big with the big endeavors to really try and do your homework uh, to to try and I think if you approach what you describe well you know but one element of it just the density of the text what does it mean will you use all of it um, I think you start with that and you go back to it and and you know chew it for a bit and then um, digest and then move on and as you are so doing and becoming familiar with that dense material you start to you start to, you're imbibing the piece and maybe understanding how it might, how it might lay itself out in terms of a, a location. Uh, for me, for instance, we made a film of uh, Shakespeare's As You Like It, and in, in the end we set it, set it in a version of Japan, and that was a process of probably, I should think, 20 years of, of my initial trip to Japan and the t cherry blossom time, Japanese forests, and all the cultural elements of that life. Uh, and and an appreciation of the outdoors that was starting to marry with my understanding of as you like it and similar preoccupations and could they find a way in a for some people a sort of highly conceptualized version of the play to to marry well um so i think that my my experience particularly of directing things is that i take a long time to get to them try and understand it first try and feel feel uh where it might happen i go and i stimulate myself with all sorts of other art if you're doing Romeo and Juliet, I made a trip to Verona. I went and saw uh, everything that might have influenced anybody who might have lived there in terms of ancient art that would have been available across the centuries. 
and uh, you're constantly trying to marry a technical um, exactitude with an imaginative freedom that ultimately, after a period of years, probably will land into something that is another starting point to see whether that ignites a contemporary acted version of it to make a different kind of impact. And and you are bound by the text because although you may omit some of it, you certainly can't change any of it. Uh, well, no, you can't. Although God knows, in performance, I've done a bit of that myself, <laughs> but not 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 with any not with any malice of forethought, but through sheer simple incompetence. Well, fifteen hundred lines. I mean, there is a certain <laughs> latitude. <laughs> Many kids who who learn to hate Shakespeare when they read it in school, uh, it's because they can't make sense of it. You know, many of them never get over that. And uh, and a lot of them, I suspect, wonder what it has to do with them. Especially, well, a friend of mine once said that the problem with the young generation is that, you know, they've been raised to think that the world was created on the day they were born. So there isn't, in many cases, a lot of historical context that they can draw upon. Going back to what turned you on to Shakespeare, what would you say to them if you, you know, were put in front of a classroom? And Well, my own personal view is, of course, people don't have to like Shakespeare, um, but it, it's maybe interesting to appreciate why he may or may not work. Um, if you break down the stories, I think the stories have simple and universal uh, recognition. You can understand and perhaps have some sympathy or take a view or be excited or not or stimulated by uh, a play like Richard III and, and how a, a man with a grudge decides to decimate half his family as he uh, seeks power. And there's, you know, that's, that's gripping, that's Sopranos-like um, entertainment. Power dynamics between groups of men is understood by many. The stories can be deconstructed and, and, and you can work out whether you find them interesting. And then you can talk about the um, perhaps revisiting the idea of how you ex experience the plays and worrying less about the literal understanding of what they mean. I, I knew early on that um, I was I became very quickly unconcerned about whether I understood everything, but very happy if I had a gist of, of what was going on, if I intuited in some way, if I just felt as though I felt it in some way. Um, uh, there was there was a music to it, you know, a rhythm to it that I think people you needn't feel they need a you know first class honors degree to enjoy. So I would say um, that ultimately, still they have the perfect right to not enjoy this particular work, but there might be ways to reopen the uh, the entry walls to uh, the the work. And I would start with the stories and then start to uh, think about how the poetry works without needing literal understanding um, and that involves a little bit of structural work to just understand about rhythm and lots of lots of young people know about rhythm true enough now you're you're part of a long tradition of actors who direct it's i think a, a much deeper theatrical tradition in the uk than in north america perhaps does treading the boards yourself give you a more intuitive even a more compassionate insight into the, the challenges that your colleagues face in tackling a role, how to help them unlock the best of what they're striving for? I think that there are plenty of, of plenty of directors who do not act who have, who have such insights, but I do think it is a particular and helpful ability to understand when, how, why people get scared, why particular scenes might be intimidating, why certain kinds of characters might be particularly difficult to come to grips with why things why particular things are difficult to learn 
And generally, I think as much as anything, that sense of the way in which an actor or an artist's fear or a concern, I think, is uh, how that plays out is something that I'm very alive to. And as a director, I try and head it off at the pass and create an atmosphere in which that is very much left at the door and a sense of freedom and play is retained for as long as you possibly can have it before you start worrying about uh, the audience are in tomorrow night. Um, so I do think my own very significant experiences with the, the fear and dread sometimes of performance is certainly helpful to me. I have thought a, a bit about what happens when an actor struggles with a role. When, and I don't know whether you've ever been in that situation yourself, but I'm, I'm thinking of a situation like notoriously Charles Lawton struggling with the role of Claudius in, in I, Claudius, kind of a legendary case of that. And now in that situation, he had a great director, Joseph von Sternberg, but he was from that sort of Teutonic dictator school from the post-expressionist period, you know, the 20s and 30s. So he really wasn't able to help Lawton at all. And I think it was an agonizing experience. You know, have you found yourself in that kind of situation ever? Uh, and Lawton's an interesting example because not only is von Sternberg, as you described, but also I've just been reading a biography of the great English actor Claude Rains, who taught Lawton. He taught Lawton at, at RADA in the in the twenties, late twenties, uh, early thirties. And Lawton was obviously a sort of proto method actor. Actually, I mean, despite having the sort of classical education, so I think um, imposition from the outside is a tough thing to to be your only leading guide, uh, and sometimes. You can't find your way to particularly, I don't know what how you describe a character like Claudius might be legitimate to say, uh, someone who is broken or hidden, at least. Um, so it was clearly difficult for him. For me, uh, playing the role of Reinhard Heydrich in the HBO uh, drama Conspiracy, which is about the Vonsey Conference, I found that a very, very naughty, naughty proposition indeed. I found that... Um, uh, to um, to to play someone, it seemed to me anyway, and on the evidence that I at least had found myself persuaded by uh, a, a person without a redeeming characteristic, that was uncomfortable because the naturalism required seemed to require a sort of intensity in the learning that meant that somehow, just like if you I don't know if you're learning an instrument, you practice the piano, you become it becomes habitual. So if you practice delving into the insides of someone who you might even consider to be evil, then there's a bleed that happens that is very, very uncomfortable. I don't suggest I became evil during this period, but I think I became very, very depressed by playing the role. And um, the process of the intense naturalism meant that somehow you had to be very unguarded. I mean, he, he himself was a sort of, um, gave the performance at the meeting he chaired um, that you might say was very sort of calculated. But I think my experience of playing it was that I needed to have the least amount of sort of acting between me and the camera. And in so doing, I gave myself um, a hard time because I suppose the darkness of those materials and that which we were talking about, 90 minutes in which a group of men basically pressed go on the final solution, was cumulatively a deeply affecting consideration to live with. So from the point of view of trying to pr produce a, a piece of art about it, I found that that probably was the most uh, challenging moment that I had with a, with a role. 
that's a conspiracy, which was a, an HBO film, it, you have to approach it with a certain amount of steel in your spine because it, it's hard to deal with. And, and your performance of Heydrich was not only uh, epitomized that evil, but he was flamboyantly self-promotionally evil. I mean, he really liked to toot his own horn about how absolutely callous and, and cavalier he was about what he was suggesting. For those of us who sometimes attend meetings and think meetings are hell, well, that's kind of the, the, the ultimate example. It sure is. And I think that it, the, the, you live around that kind of subject matter for long enough, and you can become very, very disappointed and disillusioned with the human condition. Uh, that we have, uh, that we're capable of doing these things. In that sense, of course, it's necessary because it's a, an important example, uh, lest we forget what we are, what we are capable of. Right, exactly. Well, to offset that, you have sort of the almost diametric opposite, which is playing uh, FDR in Warm Springs, which is really a beautiful performance. I have to say that uh, my wife, June, just wanted to watch it five times in a row. She found it so moving and so <laughs> so and so persuasive. Uh, I mean, mm. most people don't have a visual image of Reinhold Heydrich, but they certainly do of someone like FDR, or for that matter, Boris Johnson, who I understand you're going to be playing shortly. So what kind of a challenge when there is a character who's part of the historical record that, you know, is in people's consciousness already that way? Well, the big positive is usually, particularly with the political figures, there's a massive amount of material to research. It's really infinite almost, particularly with the politicians. And so with FDR, I mean, a fascinating character with many fine biographies written about him, extraordinary amount of material available. And because of the rather hidden nature of his, uh, of, of his physical challenges, uh, lots of things emerged later on. So there were lots of new pieces of information to pick up about quite how he was dealing with keeping from the American public the nature of his um, mobility. And also, he, you know, it was a time when people wrote with a greater elegance and a, a perhaps even more of a sense of writing through, you know, the weighty deeds of history. And so the language and the, the nature of the prose that those people were involved with is also very inspiring and uplifting. The challenge is when people have very clear ideas of, you know, how they should be. Boris Johnson is really somebody who everybody has an opinion about, everybody sees every day. And he was a key figure in the early part of the pandemic, which is what the series that I appear in, uh, This Scepted Isle, is about. What I enjoy about playing those characters is that you have to take out any personal opinion. My job is not to persuade people about who or what FDR was, but to try and learn everything I can about him and present as much of it as I possibly can and let the audience make up their minds. But, you know, the more interesting the individual and the job they have, the more fascinating it is as an actor to be you know, made aware of, of uh, elements of our history moments behind the scenes that are incredibly important or, or simply fascinating. All of the characters you mentioned led very rich lives, so to play them was a, was a rich experience. Mm -hmm. Getting into your, your initial forays into directing films, that must have been quite formidable on, on Henry V, your first film. Uh, you're tackling a, a genuine masterpiece, even though it's one that you were very familiar with from the stage. But, you know, you find yourself plunged into uh, what must have been a rather steep learning curve. Cameras, lenses, recording sound, mixing Foley effects, uh, scoring, and all sorts of different collaborations than the ones you'd, you'd have had on the stage. And you plunged in it with huge success in a sort of a Wellesian fashion, if I can say. 
at age 29. How did you manage to make that leap and learn a new storytelling language effectively? Well, if I'd had your very impressive and comprehensive list of all the things required as a filmmaker, I, I might have found it easier at the time. Uh, I would, I didn't, I had no idea what foley, foley effects were at that stage when I started. I knew that I had an idea of how you could tell the story in pictures, but I didn't know, um, I didn't know how to implement that. But I began to understand that film directing is, is, is realizing that there are plenty of people who do. And what they need is to be directed by someone with their own particular view and imaginative response to that story, whether it's a new one or whether it's a, a, an established classic as I was working on. I was fortunate that it was a very, very, very steep learning curve indeed. But I was always uh, armed with that sense of um, how, the, how the story played where it might be funny, where it might be sad, uh, where it might be swift, where it might be slow, and a sort of sense of the phrasing of the, of the piece. And so that's an enormous, and uh, that's a big armory of information to have going into something where you could then allow perhaps for scrutiny of all the other areas of ignorance that um, you needed to apply yourself to, to in order to make all the other variables work. I was very, very aware of the immense privilege in being able to do it, but excitement and that same, the vast bulk of the company of the film Henry V had all been in the touring versions of Hamlet, Much Ado About Nothing and As You Like It, which had finished playing in London the previous Saturday evening. And we all started work at Shepparton Studios on the Monday with a few folk joining like uh, Paul Schofield and, and Ian Holm and, um, and Judy Dench, etc. With those people on hand, I mean, I had four distinguished Henry V's in the cast, people who played as <laughs> the greatest. So I could talk to Paul Schofield or Ian Holm or Michael Williams about what it was like to play Henry V. I had, I had much resource, and I think um, the biggest lesson I learned on that film was whenever you knew it to be the case, say loudly, clearly, uh, I don't know, <laughs> and then talk, talk to someone who does. Well, clearly you were an adept student from all the, the technical and creative people around you, and the results in your filmed work in Shakespeare are remarkable. But what really strikes me is that most of your Shakespeare films were low or modestly budgeted. It's, it's actually hard for me to believe that your Hamlet, the only uncut, unexpurgated version of Hamlet, I think, yet committed to film, had a budget of $18 million. I keep thinking that almost all of it must have been spent on 70-millimeter film stock. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you've had some hits and you've had some misses. But if I can be permitted to play a bit of an old children's game, Hamlet, Henry V, The Magic Flute, Thor, which of these things does not belong? And I guess that gets me into making the transition from modest budgets to immense budgets, because uh, I think up until Thor, your biggest budget was $45 million for Frankenstein. You know, what drew you into entering the Marvel universe and how much of a, a shock was it to your system to find yourself dealing with literally an army of technical and effects wizards doing lots of CGI, lots of green screen work, and still trying to place your own dramatic stamp on, on such popular and actually revered cultural material well you know magic flute and as you like it and sleuth for three films that i've made that i hadn't found an audience um i did want an audience and i wanted to make films and, and i knew that there were other 
areas of my creativity in Belfast. You see the young boy Buddy read the comic Thor. That's where I was introduced to the character when I was eight, nine, ten years old. So um, it had been with me for a long time, and the dynamics of that particular cocktail of Norse myth, Norse legend with uh, superhero environments, nine realms and ice giants and the planet of Jotunheim and other worlds that could really unleash the imagination. Uh, they, they, they had always appealed to me. But as you were hinting at earlier on, you know, they also required, and this seemed to be why Marvel were happy to give me the job in the end, um, somebody who was unafraid of that, perhaps very interested in all of that side of it, the epic myth-making element of it, uh, but who was interested in humanity at the center of that somehow the soul of the gods, not just their realm-spanning uh, escapades, but but uh, that which drove them. So many of the the great myths are driven by these very personal rivalries and jealousies and grudges and missteps between powerful people, uh, motivated by very basic human instincts. Um, and they knew that I was interested in that too. So I brought those two things in the middle of it, and and the satellite of brilliance that hovered around me from all the other departments was just something that it was then down to me to try and find a way uh, to in this new proportion of scale to manage and to direct and that that learning process of trying to manage that scale and that step up in scale was indeed the steep learning curve on that film which was one that was jumping from small and independent to the massive and spectacular and it's a road full of bumps and twists and turns and things. But as I say, and as one character says in, in, the, in the Bleak Midwinter, you fall down, you get up, you fall down, you get up. Right. Or as Beckett puts it, fail, fail again, fail better. Right, exactly. And actually, I think it really works because uh, I don't want to uh, sound snobby about it. But, you know, we've all seen so many films with so many spectacular special effects and if there isn't a human story at the heart of it, they actually, I think, lose their impact after, you know, so many of them have been done. And I, I think that you were able to to get that balance. And I have to say, anytime Anthony Hopkins is on the screen, I'm there already. So that automatically made that work for me. But obviously, you've liked the big budget world, and it seems to like you just fine, as evidenced by the Disney live action Cinderella that you directed. And Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit, and others, having those kinds of resources and the kinds of creative planning discussions that the effects team and the art design and set design and costume team bring, is that something that um, is kind of a special different satisfaction compared to some of the more intimate productions? I think it is because it's, um, you, you just know that you can deliver to the audience a sort of an intensity and scale and, and sort of a spectacle that needs those resources it needs that cash behind it it needs you know if you're making very complicated costumes and on a large scale or you're replicating armies and on a large scale and you have stories that jump from different worlds and want people to embrace or be immersed in a in an escapist fantastical environment um, you need to be able to deliver that so that was something of a thrill to feel wow we could actually we can follow through on the outlandish imaginations of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee in these comics and actually deliver something which is worth leaving your house for. Right, and CGI armies always follow your direction. No, absolutely, yeah, and they're incredibly well-disciplined, never out of step. Yes, exactly. Reminds me of uh, 
a story about how the Hollywood director Michael Curtiz was, um, I think, on Charge of the Light Brigade, was directing a huge battle sequence, and he wanted the, the Lancers to lunge on his direction. So he yelled, lunge, lunge, and everyone went to lunch. Ah! <laughs> he, he had a megaphone. So uh, anyway, I, I did want to sneak in a, a word about opera because you've directed one, a very daring and bold production with a, uh, of Magic Flute with a libretto in English by Stephen Fry, a friend of our foundation. Would you ever consider directing opera for the stage? I have done in the past. The the, the sort of lifespan of operas um, in, in terms of how they're organized is sometimes something I seem to find difficult to fit into the way I work in terms of projects plan. The, the opera world sometimes I find hard to slot into in terms of the way they plan productions. I haven't yet found my way to that. I'm not sure that I ever will, to be honest. Um, I think that there are so many, it, th- th- there are so many sort of rigorously confined parts of the opera process uh, as far as I understand it, that I think uh, are not necessarily um, simpatico with the way I work. So I think it's unlikely, but I, yeah, I, I always like a challenge and I'm always intrigued. And if the right if the right piece in the right place arrives, then it would certainly be something I would think more than twice about. Wow, well, it's, that would be something to look forward to. I think you'd be a natural for Wozzeck, for example. Um, which, oh, okay. Yeah, which basically, because it has a great play behind it, a great dramatic element behind yeah. it, which yeah. many opera librettos yeah. do not. Last question. In your own life and work, you've come directly in contact with two major schools of acting, the classical theatrical training of the British theater and method acting, especially in its American form. And that sort of came through very um, amusingly in uh, My Weekend with Marilyn, where you portray an exasperated, uh, to put it mildly, Laurence Olivier, uh, working with Marilyn Monroe. And it really captured that dichotomy. But you also worked on Frankenstein with Robert De Niro. So I assume you've lived that experience too. What what happens when these two worlds collide? I think there are many more similarities than there are differences, to be honest. I think that you, you borrow from each. I think that Vincent Robert and I were, were, strong, were strong students of each other's technique, I think, uh, when working on Frankenstein. There's a funny story when two young actors were going to enter a scene that we were both in and they had to appear as if breathless from a um, uh, from a, a sort of ride across town and as we were gearing up for the scene they started doing press-ups and running up and down and on the spot and De Niro started looking at them more and more quizzically uh, and of course there were delays and delays and delays so of course quite quickly they became absolutely exhausted and still we hadn't started the scene until he eventually he went over to them and said you know you should hang on because this really doesn't have to happen until we say action. Uh, and then he came back to me. I said, they're only doing that because of you, Robert. They're only doing that because of Raging Bull and New York, New York, New York. So this is, this is, this is your fault. Um, he, he, he laughed at that and, and, uh, and they were happy to take a rest and a piece of advice from the master, uh, Mr. De Niro. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, uh, you've been very generous. I can't uh, let you go without saying, I hope there's a filmed Lear or Tempest in your future. Both of those are ones that I would pay triple admission to see. What lies ahead? New projects on the drawing board? Death on the Nile is in cinemas on February the 11th of 2022, uh, all things being equal. And beyond that, I'm sure, I don't know what, but uh, there, are, there are plenty of things fizzling away. I hope some of it involves Shakespeare. And, but I'm excited to release Belfast, get Death on the Nile out to an audience and continue being on a great voyage of discovery. Well, on behalf of my friends at Stratford, 
come and direct a production here. I'm sure they would love to have you. I have no authorization to say that, but, you know, I would go. (laughs) And again, congratulations on Belfast. It really is a beautiful, moving, I think, perhaps your finest work ever, like put Hamlet alongside it and Henry V, but, you know, it's hard to choose. Everybody should see it, and I, I hope they will. And having won the People's Choice Award, good luck at the Oscars. It it's, sounds promising. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, another time. Well, friends, that brings our conversation with Ken Branagh to a close. I really do hope you'll all go out and see Belfast. It's an amazing film. And really, for me, one of the absolute highlights of his career as a filmmaker. I would also like to uh, to present some news to you. We're really delighted to be introducing a new producer to our team. Rudrapriya Rathor is joining us and will be co-piloting with me for our episodes to come. Rudolfia, welcome. Thanks, Brian. I'm so happy to be joining the Gold Standard. It's very exciting. I know that you're going to find it very interesting as we move on to other exciting guests in coming weeks. But unfortunately, along with uh, happy news, we have uh, a sad note to strike because our intrepid producer through all of our episodes from the very beginning until now, Olivia Parsons will be uh, leaving us for Pastures New. Olivia, we're going to miss you. I'm going to miss you all as well, Brian. Um, It's been a real pleasure working on the Gould Standard, producing these stories, and of course, meeting all of these amazing folks along the way. We've had a lot of fun together, haven't we? We have, and uh, some uh, amazing stories to share. And I hope that from uh, wherever you're going to be, that you'll keep listening. Oh, you know I will be. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Now, I understand that you have some important information to share with our friends. Yes. If you're interested in keeping up with the Gold Standard podcast and more work from the Foundation, be sure to follow us across social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Glenn Gold Foundation. And as you know, we are a registered Canadian charity, and we rely on the support of arts lovers like you to continue bringing inspiring stories to life. So please consider giving generously by visiting our website, glengould.ca. And uh, thank you again, Olivia, for all you've done for us, uh, Rudrapriya. Thank you for joining us. And friends, I want to thank you for joining us too, and hope that you'll be with us for our next episode of The Gould Standard. <laughs>